I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where tonight it's a very great pleasure to be hosting a discussion between the uh, Polish poet, novelist, essayist, painter... Anything else, Jacek? (laughs) (laughs) Jacek, then. Plumber. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's Polish. And his translator, Antonio Lloyd-Jones. Jacek's written... Many novels uh, combines his many disciplines um, by mixing graphic imagery with words in both poetry and prose, uh, notably in Saturn, a book that deals with the relationship between Francisco Goya and his son and the black paintings. Um, Antonia is an award-winning translator, as you may have noticed. Most recently, this is very evening, she will be presented an award. So... Um, Jacek and Antoni will talk for 40 minutes. Yeah, and then we can have questions. Yep, and then we'll have uh, time for questions and uh, prize giving and book buying. <laughs> okay, uh, now join me in welcoming <coughs> Jacek Benel and Antonio Lloyd Jones. Thank you very much for coming, everybody. It's lovely to see you all here. Um, and uh, I'm very, very happy to be able to introduce Jacek who is a most remarkable author. Um, And I wanted to start by saying that I'm just stunned that somebody at the age of only 33, you know, Christ's life was over by then. Um, uh, Right, he achieved a lot in the 33 years too, all right, it can be said. But um, you are the most versatile and prolific author, and you've already published six volumes of poetry... Um, two novels, one of which is based on your grandmother's life and is a kind of (coughs) picture of the whole of 20th century Poland. And then the historical novel that David referred to, Saturn, based on the life of Goya. Um, Then you've got two books of short stories, um, one of them inspired by Balzac, um, and lots of other works of fiction including the most extraordinary things. This is a wonderful book. This contains lots and lots and lots of old maps. I don't know if you can see. And Jacek was commissioned to write commentaries to the maps, and he's written kind of wonderful stories that go with the maps, inspired by them. 
And then there's this most extraordinary book I've ever seen in my life, Photoplasticon. You are a great collector, um, a magpie, we could say. And you go, do you go to flea markets and things Often, in Warsaw? Yes. Is that right? And he picks up all sorts of things, including photographs. They're not necessarily beautiful or particularly obviously interesting. They're often rather weird. Um, And then he writes a sort of what's called an ekphrasis, a literary commentary to the photograph, which isn't just a description of the picture, but it's something inspired by the picture. And I am just stunned that one author can come up with so many things and also write... Uh, li- uh, newspaper columns about literature and writing and reading, and um, you're also a translator. This man here translated The Great Gatsby last year. Into a, a small Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> Into a Gatsbowski. Um, and, um, and Edmund White, and poetry by Philip Larkin. I mean, not the easiest things, and you're also a fantastic painter. Can you explain how come you are ten people in one <laughs> and you have all these wonderful sources of inspiration and these amazing ways of expressing your thoughts and ideas? Well, I guess uh, partially it's because of my family, mainly my mother's family, who is described in, in Lala, the novel you, you talked about. Um, so in, in that branch of the family, everyone was an artist of a sort, uh, n- not necessarily a professional one, uh, but they shared a belief that you have to do something artistic in your life, otherwise you would not be fulfilled, you'll be lacking an important part of a human experience. So each of them either played a musical instrument or, or painted or, or wrote whatever, I mean, they, they had various abilities and, and talents, uh, and sometimes they, they were doing that even without any talent, but uh, <laughs> in a persistent way. So um, it's not that we are taught that. Uh, it was somehow understood in that family that you should do something with your life uh, in an artistic way. And you might become a, a professional piano player or a painter, but you don't have to. Mm. Um, so, since I was a child, um, I drew and painted. And uh, this was a, an obvious choice because my mother is a painter. And um, I guess if you are a small child and you watch this wonderful process of, of painting a picture, it's like magic working, really in process uh, especially if it's not abstract painting but figurative painting Mm -hmm. and you have this flat surface uh, and this and paints I mean paints you know paints are not a nice substance they are they are colourful yes I give you that but they are sticky and unpleasant smelly smelly. (laughs) and then you mix them and you create whole interiors and people and living things on, on a flat surface and this is something really amazing so this was an obvious choice but gradually uh, literature really took over uh, in my case and 
I think it was just the, ca- the question of, of the feedback I got from the world. <laughs> it was like, okay, you're, you're painting, that's fine, that's very nice, but, um, but you're writing too. And, uh, and I published my first book when I was 18 years old. Was that poetry? No, that was actually short stories. Mm. Oh, yes. And, um, and since that time, I sort of gravitated towards uh, literature. But also, another reason, I guess, for this versatility... Um, is that if you want to live, make your living with writing, which is extremely difficult in Poland and everywhere, I guess, unless perhaps you're a state writer in a regime, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, then you really have to to pick strangest things sometimes. So, uh, okay, I'm very much interested in the the whole experience of, of of life and rendering it in literature, or, or trying to stitch together those two worlds which are which don't really fit each other. So literature and reality, uh, and poetry, prose, essays do that in in different ways. So this is really interesting for me. But uh, another thing is just a uh, harsh life. I mean, uh, I do. S- I, I'm a judge in poetry competitions. I translate. Uh, sometimes books I'm, or poetry I'm not really fond of. Uh, and I get really strange commissions. But in most cases, I, I turn them down. <laughs> I pick, I think, only those which are at least a little interesting. I've got a very funny one here of his. This is sometimes there are art exhibitions and Jacek's asked to write something for the catalogue, some sort of story inspired by the pictures. And here's a great example. These are slightly odd pictures of they're, they're I think rather sinister and they show every single figure in them is female some of them are dolls and there are women doing odd things in a sort of 1900 setting they're slightly alarming in a way but anyway so he wrote this essay or story that's in here which I had the <laughs> misfortune to translate because taking the idea that there are all these female figures in these pictures. He doesn't just write some boring catalogue note. He comes up with a world where men have disappeared and gone completely and there's nothing but women. And then proceeds, which you can do in Polish, to write the entire thing in the feminine. So there is not a single masculine noun or masculine ending in the entire text. So as a translator, you think, oh, no. (laughs) So, um... So if I read you just a tiny few lines of this female world. What about work? Of course we went on working. We operated the factory production lines. We ran the urban transport, hospitals, art galleries, and almost everything else. We sowed plants with feminine names, such as courgettes, lettuce, desiree potatoes, rosemary, lavender, or sweet Sicily. Our culinary arts also underwent some changes. Some of the old cookery books went to be recycled for obvious reasons. Um, We cooked in cocottes and preserved cherries and olives for the winter, but in the new conditions, Angerona, goddess of winter, (laughs) was not as severe as she used to be. She became noticeably milder, etc. So you don't just take these commissions and say, oh, well, I've got to earn some money. You make a whole new new world out of them, which is is really something. Well, it's not... There's no point, I think, in doing boring things. <laughs> I mean, life's short. 
And uh, if you uh, if you get, I got recently a, a, a commission. I, I turned it down. I was asked to write, um, actually by a member of my family. I had this eminent. Uh, member of my family somewhere in 19th century and she was a nun and uh, <laughs> she made some kind of orphanage or leprosory or <laughs> something like that and she was uh, as I heard an important person in, in, in that particular order which I can't remember she which, didn't which inspire one inspire you then but it wasn't really inspiring no it, it sounded like a, mm. an extremely dull work to do so I, I refused I said I'm, I'm mm. not terribly sorry but I'm not a specialist in that field <laughs> and that was it well I'd like to just focus a bit on on the historical novel Saturn I've got this horrible picture when I was translating it I had to put a cover over it because I just can't bear looking at it I've kind of become immune to it but it's blah. Um, and it needs to have this pack this punch Um, This is the most extraordinary novel. It's based on theories about the life of the painter, the real painter Goya, and you've kept it in the Spanish 18th to 19th century setting of the Napoleonic Wars in Spain. Um, And then the way the book is constructed, there are three voices, that of old Goya, the painter, then of his son, Javier, and of Javier's son, Mariano, And the theory that you found is that Goya did not paint the black paintings, which are the most terrific of Goya's paintings, the really grim ones that once you've seen them you never forget, like the horrible picture of Saturn eating his child. And although um, not a lot is known about Goya's son Javier, except that he was a painter, is that right? You used this and you have decided that Javier painted the black paintings as an expression of his appalling relationship with his father. So you've kind of taken these real people and rather had them serve your purpose, in a way. Um, And I'm just interested in, in what led you to this book and to this way of using historical fact in fiction. Oh, there's kind of uh, historical novels which were, I think, um, invented in 19th century, that you pick a certain part of history that you know from chronicles and other sources, and you just render it in, in a literary way. I uh, know you, you pick one of wives of Henry VIII and you write down her story. So you use people from the real life and you retell their stories, but you don't really add much. I mean, you can highlight something, but you you don't change the story. And the pleasure of reading that is, uh, I don't know, learning a little from something which is probably more attractive than a history school book. But um, I find it rather uh, uninspiring, really. And um, I think that you should... uh, use uh, the, the characters uh, to tell important stories, stories important for, for the world you live in. And for a very long time I was searching for a story that would um, carry a book about uh, a typical patriarch family in which fathers mm. and sons cannot really communicate because um, if they would communicate anything pleasant or, or lovable and, and, and sweet it would be perceived as a, 
as being a weakling or effeminate, which in that world is, is the worst possible word that you can use. So um, if the, if they, even if they love each other, they, com- they can communicate only the harsh things, so uh, lack of interest or fury or, or violence. And, um, and Goya's family was like a perfect choice for that. Uh, it's not only the dark paintings with uh, unpleasant uh, sceneries and, and, and characters, but uh, it's also um, it's this great metaphor. I mean, Goya was death for half of his life. There is <laughs> not a better metaphor of father cannot communicate. Uh, cannot communicate with his son like a, like a deaf man mm. and um, and that values other things I mean the more I read into the history of this particular family uh, the more gruesome it was yes. uh, really so uh, the whole s- I mean it's like those things that come suddenly to you when you read the, the historical sources and they're like they fit perfectly the, the whole story starts with uh, with Javier saying I was born in the street of disappointment. And it's not something I invented. He was, <laughs> he was born, born in the street, street of disappointment. It's or disappointment cool, street. Mm. And, um, and that was, I think that was the, this first spark. Uh, the, when I read the, the, the inter- interview with a Spanish professor who said, uh, it's impossible that Goya painted the black paintings. It was someone else and it was probably his son. And we know next to nothing about him. We know he signed uh, his letters Javier po- uh, Goya Pintor, so Javier Goya Painter, but we don't know a single painting mm. by him. And we know that he was a huge disappointment with his father. And we know that his father had many children, only one of them survived till the uh, old age, yes. which was Javier. And he always dreamt that he's going to have uh, um, someone who will inherit the genius and who will become even a better painting than himself, painter than himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a child, probably an illegitimate child, towards the end of his life, Rosario Weiss. Uh, uh, he lived with her mother in, in Bordeaux, in France. And it was the same story. He, he dreamed that perhaps towards his, the end of his yes. life, she will become a, yes. a great painter. And all his dreams came to nothing. Mm. Uh, but he was a terrible father, and he w- was trying to suppress his children true characters and change them into Marvel's painters mm. so um, so when I read that I thought okay <laughs> this is like a story <laughs> for me and then the more I read of course the, the better it fit together mm. I, I must say this is I've translated quite a lot of books from Polish and I think this is one of the very very best books I've translated okay. it's extremely powerfully written to a point where there's immense pain in this book and when I was translating it I felt this immense pain and the last week was just agony and I just wanted to get away from this horrible Javier's horrible existence and experience <laughs> and I was just, I had a tremendous migraine eventually <laughs> I was very ill and, and I mean, I don't want to put you off <laughs> reading it, translating it takes you a lot closer in but it's I mean, some, I think some of the people here have read it, and it, it re- I would highly recommend it. It's the most brilliant piece of writing. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit. Between the uh, monologues of the three male characters, 
each of the paintings, they're not reproduced fantastically, but at least it gives you an idea. Each of the black paintings does appear in the book with a, one of these ekphrases, in other words, a, a, a literary description of a work of art in this case. I think in, it's an ekphrasis, any expression of one form of art in another genre, something in like that. In literature, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Piece of art in literature. So I'm just going to read you this little bit, if I can untangle my glasses and see what I'm reading. Okay, the picture is, is two men beating each other over the head in a bog with large sticks. It's called The Duel. Every war is a war about space. Great empires send hundreds of regiments to their death burn down cities and fields of unreaped corn, raise monasteries to the ground, hack down orchards and slaughter flocks, just to have even more room. Because those heraldic beasts, the lions of Léon, the eagles of France, need a great deal of space to gorge themselves to the full. But a man knows nothing about war, about all-consuming hatred, or about battling to the last drop of blood until he has seen two Aragonese or Galician peasants fighting over a piece of land. For even when empires are battling against each other, right down at the very bottom, beneath the unfurled banners, beneath the trails of cannon smoke, beneath the pyramid of ranks and titles, beneath the brightly coloured cloth and gold buttons of the uniforms, is a Galician peasant sticking his bayonet into the belly of a peasant from Picardy or a swineherd from Fuende Todos, using his broadsword to hack off the arm of a Gascon miller in the fight for a strip of boundary four fingers wide. Torrential rain has already fallen on the ground. On the left, one can see a foaming, fitful river. From among the dark grey clouds shines a patch of clear sky which you've looked at closely is like the profile of a mighty lion gazing at a steep mountain in the distance. Nothing is left of the storm but mud. It stretches from the hills to the low slushy water. So much mud that there's enough for everyone. They are both standing up to their knees in it, belabouring each other with cudgels. Without fury, without sudden rage... Instead, they are methodically, consistently delivering blow after blow. The one on the right, the younger man, has shielded his mouth with his arm and is raising his brow in surprise. The one on the left, covered in blood that is pouring from his forehead and a ripped ear, seems equally surprised. In the brief moment when their sticks have been drawn back by a swing of the arms and are only just gathering momentum to strike at an exposed forehead, a thick shock of hair, or at a hand. These two men are looking at each other, and are most evidently surprised that they have held out for so long, that instead of making it up, they keep on battering away, ignoring their wounds, and that they are fighting each other for space, though neither of them will give way, for neither is capable of giving way, tethered by the mud, as if by snares. As far as the eye can reach, there isn't a living soul. All this land is theirs, but they keep bogging themselves down deeper and deeper in the mud, eyeing each other up as they plan the next blow to make it hurt as much as possible. You can see why it wasn't painful to translate. Um, So, um, and then um, 
on from that, uh, would you say you were talking earlier about being a painter and how you'd moved more into literature, but I know that you do still paint. So do you think that there's a correlation between painting and writing, and how does painting influence this piece of literature? It's so closely connected with art. Well, this piece is obviously uh, uh, inspired by a particular painting, and I do it quite often. Um, Photoplastic on this, as, as you said, uh, inspired by photos, and uh, cosmographia by maps, but um, I think it's something deeper and extending to the whole of my writing. Uh, it's not only the relation between particular images and, uh, and the text, uh, so using them as a counterpart or a source of inspiration, uh, or rather sewing them together into something uh, bigger. But um, it's always also the way uh, I think my brain is trained. Mm -hmm. uh, when, you, when you paint or when you draw, you have this uh, custom of looking at things in a different manner. Uh, it's like people assume that faces are pink. Um, and they are not. I mean, faces are not only mentioning the variety of people's colors uh, and races, uh, they are, even a sort of pink face is, is <laughs> grayish and green and, and violet, um, depending on the light uh, and shadow uh, and, and things that are around it. So um, when you watch things carefully, they they show that they are completely different than you, you assume. You, you <laughs> actually usually see things as stereotypes, whereas if you observe them carefully, they are completely different. Um, so uh, rendering the space and colors and everything on a flat surface uh, force you to train your brain in a very particular way. Mm. And it's preserved also if you do something else. So, um, if you describe, I know, an interior, or a face, or, or plot of land, or whatever, piece of wall, uh, and you have that training somewhere, mm. and your brain is working in that manner, you do it, I guess, in a different way than if you didn't have the You training. write in an artist's way. Y yes, <laughs> you're, you're perceiving uh, in different manners, so you're also showing it to mm. the reader in a different manner. Mm. And I think you can feel it in, in majority of my texts, or in all mm. of them, that, that they tend to have quite vivid descriptions. Uh, or, or I'm trying to, to make this world as tangible as possible. Yes. Um, and I guess um, people people feel that. I mean, many of my reading of my readers say that they can't bear. I mean, reading some passages because they are so tangible and <laughs> they or can itchy smell it. or you know. <laughs> uh, so I think it, it works. Yes. Uh, I, I like this kind of literature mm. literature as a reader. I know that there are many uh, readers who prefer a style that's more dry, mm. sort of. Mm. Uh, straightforward, but it's just, I guess, mm. every writer has his, his own ways, and this is my way. <laughs> um, and uh, I wanted to ask you also, you said earlier that you turned down a commission to write a book about a, a worthy nun. Can you tell us about the unworthy <laughs> nun who, is, who has attracted your, your attention instead? 
What? Um, this is the new book that Yatsik's working on. Yeah, I have like two third or half of it now. Um, well, this is a this is a true story. This is a true story of a lie. Uh, uh, there was a there was a, 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 a certain lady who was born towards the end of 18th century, and um, in 1940, in 1840s, she appeared first in. Poznan, which was then in the German partition, and then in Paris, and then in Rome, and everywhere she attracted uh, huge interests. She was a very charismatic person. Uh, she made a huge influence on Polish romantics who lived uh, the emigration uh, in Paris back then. Uh, and the story that she, she was telling and repeating all the time with more and more gruesome details was that she was... Um, mother superior of a Greek Catholic uh, church in um, Minsk, today capital of Belarusia. Um, Greek Catholics was a, were a group of, of uh, Russian Orthodox um, believers who converted in the end of uh, 16th century. So they analleged the Pope, keeping uh, all the traditional rites of, of the Russian Orthodox Mass. But they would perceive themselves as Catholics are using the, the Russian Orthodox rite. And in, in 1839, the Tsar of Russia forced the uh, Greek Catholic Church to, to join the Russian Orthodox Church. And it was quite painful. There were many protests. Uh, there were prosecutions, sometimes very cruel. Uh, people were killed and tortured. And... She told this gruesome story about uh, a whole uh, convent of nuns who went through most terrible tortures, rapes, beatings, uh, murders, uh, because they refused to give up their faith and join the Russian uh, Orthodox Church. So a wicked bishop was the, the w there was a wicked bishop <laughs> bishop who would break their nose with a fist. I mean, the, the most terrible. Descriptions of tortures in a, in a sort of very elaborate manner, and um, she gained huge attention. Uh, all the newspapers in Europe wrote about her. Uh, even Charles Dickens, in his, uh, he had this newspaper oh, back then, yes. and he wrote something about her. And she went to Rome to tell about those terrible things that the Greek Catholics suffer. And Pope was actually moved to tears, and. Um, uh, she published a book describing that terrible story. And she received her own convent in Rome, her own monastery, where she died 20 years later. Uh, she was doing all kinds of miracles as well. Uh, she healed people. I mean, she, uh, she had some prophecies. Uh, she was a very charismatic person, so she, used, she, 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 she manipulated people in a very smart way. Uh, but the thing is that she was a cook, and she invented the whole story. She was never a nun. Uh, she, she was a widow of a Russian officer. And she was probably a baptized Jewess who converted to Christianity. And she had this huge longing for being a nun, but she never was one. And, uh, but this is, ju this is just a story. I mean, it's a story for a newspaper article. It's not that deep. The deep thing in that story is that she actually suffered terrible things. 
Uh, it's hard to say what was the reason for that. It was probably the, 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 the husband, the officer, who beat her, treated her in the most terrible way. But she had those terrible scars all over her body. And uh, the thing is that, you know, a story of a woman who is beaten by her husband was not a story in the 19th century. It was not interesting for anyone there. But the story of a, of a nun who was beaten for uh, deciding Her to beliefs. not convert to, yes. to Russian Orthodox faith, oh, that was something that attracted <laughs> attention. So this is something also that happens today. There were two very important cases of uh, people who completely invented their Holocaust child mm. identity and wrote mm. books about mm -hmm. that. Uh, in order to Koshinsky. Uh, Koshinsky is one uh, he didn't invent all of that but a lot of it a lot of it but there was a man who was, whose name was Benjamin Wilkomirsky yes. and he Famous wrote a, a, a novel of a, a Holocaust child story which was reportedly marvelous written I never read that I don't think it was translated to Polish yeah. right. uh, but the thing is he was a child abandoned by his mother in Switzerland And he went to orphanage. And in order to cope with that trauma, he, he invented did, yes. his persona of a Holocaust child who was placed in an orphanage. And uh, later on, this, this whole uh, <laughs> fraud came to, the, to light. Uh, but this is a very similar story. I mean, she had absolutely no way to, to tell about her suffering in the society she lived in. She was someone on the bottom of the social ladder. She was a woman. She was uh, old because she was 50. And in that time, it was an old age, which sounds quite funny to us now. And she was a, a converted Jewess. Um, she was poor. She had no money. She was a widow. So it was like the, the bottom of the society. She's probably a translator as well. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And then she, she rose to the top. I mean, she had her own convent in, in Rome. I'm to identify with this person. <laughs> you should pass, pass as a nun. I'm looking for... <laughs> I don't think I qualify. I think I'm, I'm, um, you know. She wasn't either. I mean, this is the most interesting thing. She made strangest mistake she would leave the room with a pulp and start to bless people together with the pulp which was <laughs> awkward um, she would visit masculine I mean male orders masculine orders how do you call it convents monasteries monks. <laughs> she, she would visit monks uh, without a special permission which was completely prohibited <laughs> back then but she was never in that particular structure so she just you know Picked it up, but you've researched her life, and but what are you doing with it? How are you presenting her story? Well, it fiction? goes and goes. In uh, first, I thought I'm going to do it in three versions, uh, mm. sort of three confessions. The first one would be the confession she actually gave, the report so it's from her the, voice. Um, no, it's the, the official voice of oh, her okay. story. Yes. Then she's retelling it how it really was. But it's always her as the narrator in. Yes. 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 Okay. And then she retells the story and she's saying, okay, uh, again, I swear that I will tell the truth and only the truth, so help me God. And she retells the whole story in a completely different manner, saying, I lied, I lied, I lied, I lied. And then there's the, the third confession in which she says, in the end, this was the truth. Uh, I lied, but I was telling the truth, but there was no other way to tell the truth. But the thing is, when I started to rewrite her testimony... It's unbearable. I mean, it, it, perhaps if you are reading it as a report of a true 
story, you would be touched by it. But if you know that it's all made up, you just can't cope with it because she's <laughs> sort of adding details. And sometimes it sounds like a mockery or a pastiche or something um, because she added things to, to, to her testimony. Uh, so first there was one nun killed by a bucket of... Because they were forced to build the bishop's palace. And there was a, a bucket with, I, don't, I can't remember, stones or something. It fell from the, the scaffolding and it killed the nun. But in, then in, in, the, in the last version of her story, there are five nuns killed with those buckets. <laughs> one after another. It looks like, you know, like a cartoon. Very careless, very careless. Uh, and, um, and I thought, okay, it's... It, the reader won't be able to go through all that. So now it's alterated. You, you get... You've reduced the number of buckets. No, no, I, get, I kept it, but I just... I just give oh, a piece of her testimony and then I, yes, uh, the yes, piece of truth. Things. And yes, yes. that way you... Okay. you, you well, I'm looking forward to this um, book. Um, one of the things... Um, we've, we've been talking about your work, and one of the things I find very, well, well refreshing and very different about your work uh, amid contemporary Polish writing is that most contemporary Polish literature and not just contemporary is extremely self-referential. It's about Poland, it's about Polish issues, about Polish people, it's all set very much in Poland. Um, and you always seem to me to break away from all that and to find different settings. I mean, sometimes... It could be said that, the, uh, for instance, in Saturn, the terrible, twisted, inter-family relationships perhaps are a Polish phenomenon, mm -hmm. but, but not just Polish. They're, they are everywhere. But, um, but why do you think Polish literature is so focused on itself like that? Why is it so introverted? Well, I think it's the question of uh, tradition. First of all... Um we lost our independence for 123 years in 19th century, well, end of 18th century, and the whole 19th century, and a little piece of <laughs> 20th century. And then we regained independence for 20... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes. And again, we lost our independence because of the Second World War, uh, so the German invasion and then uh, an occupation and then the Soviet one. And uh, people were not able to communicate as a society uh, what we actually do through, I don't know, parliament, newspapers, etc., etc. Mm. It was all suppressed and censored. And because of that, uh, the literature was this field of communication and people uh, disputed Poland and their issues 
within the literature. And I guess the next generations were just sort of uh, poisoned by that. Uh, because if you are a young writer and you read Polish books, which are mainly about Poland and about Polish things, you tend to think that's the way the literature should be written. Um, I guess. And uh, uh, that, that might be one of the reasons, I think. And then the, this, this Polish belief of the the belief of Polish romantics that Poland is the Christ savior of nations. So, frankly, if something is Polish, every nation should be interested in that. <laughs> um, well, of course. Uh, I, I think that's, that's that, yeah. Yes. Well, I, I've always sort of had a kind of theory about the contemporary literature that it's partly because communism straight-jacketed Poland into not being able to fully express its experience of the Second World War, for instance, and that this country went through one of the most dreadful experiences of that whole war, but was then not allowed to go through the cathartic process that other countries could go through where culture lets you work out what's happened to you, just as any individual needs when something terrible happens to them, then needs to go through a sort of psychological process. And in Poland, that wasn't allowed to happen in a natural way. And it, so now that there's independence again, that is still happening, this kind of understanding of what that Poland has been through as a, as a country, as a nation. Well, definitely. Still being worked out. Uh, I mean, you can feel it. I, I had a funny conversation with a friend of mine recently. He went to Bosnia. He has some friends. Uh, and he said they were talking about the war. And I said, we also often talk about the war. And they said, which one? And he sec said, Second World War. And I started laughing because it was like, I know, as if he was telling that we are constantly talking about crusades or something. Um, but it's actually very vivid. I remember I read a book of interviews with Polish artists, writers, etc., creators of culture. Um, and there were people, everything from 30 to 80, and the war was present in each and every of those interviews, mm. no matter that the, um, uh, um, the journalists didn't really particularly ask about it, but it somehow emerged in a story uh, as an anecdote or anything. It's still affecting people. It's still affecting people. Yes. And um, when I was uh, a few years ago in Berlin, and um, I had this museum pass that you show with a document, and I entered one of the museums, and there was a man standing at the door and he said uh, bitter, which is can I see your document and I had this cold <laughs> thrill <laughs> on my back because it's like their words that a, a, a Polish person would, would, would hear from a G German officer or soldier uh, just be, you know caught on a street and it, it's like a feeling of a deep oppression. I mean, you can be shot in that manner. You're still hardwired into the Polish yes. psyche. But it's so weird. I mean, I, I, I never lived through the war. My parents were born after the war. And it's my grandparents, uh, for God's sake, generation who actually lived through that. But nevertheless, it is somehow very deep in the culture. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, But would you say that... Um, Polish literature is gradually sort of getting over it a bit and uh, there are some more outside influences coming in nowadays? Or uh, where are we now with it? Well, I guess so. Uh, there is a, a big interest in genre literature and it's really mm. emerging. I think the first of it was this dreadful kind of 
Romansburgs inspired by Romansburg, yes. inspired by Bridget Jones and this kind of stuff, and, <laughs> and still being written and published in large quantities. Uh, but uh, it's not really that interesting, and we had this old tradition of of um, fantasy, especially and science, science fiction, which often used in an allegorical way, as in the, uh, Zydel and Lem and so on. And yes. some logic stories also. Yes, satirical stories. and um, This was the, the way to go around the censorship, yes. of course, because if you invented the world, you're not criticizing your communist nation, but some distant planet. So uh, <laughs> you, you could do that. It was also the case of Soviet Union, like the yeah, Stugatsky brothers. Absolutely, yes. Um, and then... Uh, but then... Uh, it's still there, but I think that there are... Uh, two most important genres. First one is the reportage. Yes. And the uh, crime novels, as, as, yes. as, as, as when you speak about the, yes. the genre. I'm, I'm very fond, particularly fond of the reportage in Poland, which I think is one of the very strongest genres that, that's coming out in Polish literature now. And it's an interesting thing because we're used to travel writing and factual reporting. But this is somewhere in between the two. And Richard Kapuscinski was the first person, really, to set the tone for this. Um, and it is, I think of it very much as literature, not as news reporting. And it's often very literary in style. Um, and I've come to translate a large amount of it. And it's often more challenging than translating a novel. Um, and this is a very strong and fascinating genre, which is it's almost unique to Poland in the form that they have it in. And um, I can highly recommend it. But well, And also, it's not about Poland. It's about other countries. As this well. Is, this yeah. is where... Well, some of it's about Poland, yes. You were saying how um, one of the early proponents also is Hannah Kral, who has a book out in English now called Chasing the King of Hearts, which is a, a, a true story of a, a Jewish... Uh, a Holocaust uh, survivor. Well, yes, she she wrote very good pieces in 1970s, which were in 80s, which were mainly about uh, problems of the social nation, so, socialist nation. But uh, she uh, gravitated towards stories of the Holocaust survivors, or those who didn't survive and are just reported somewhere, and. Um, or about people who, who actually gave shelter to, to Jewish families and, for instance, were executed for that. So she covers this whole Polish-Jewish experience, and she, uh, um, I think she has a mission. She really goes mm. from one country to another, uh, and during the readings, she meets people who tell her strangest and most gruesome stories, mm. and she, turn, she turns that into a great literature, really. She's a, she is a magnificent writer, uh, There's again this huge importance of memory and understanding what's yes. happened in the war and recording these things while you still can. There's a lot of, of that involved in reportage yes. in Poland well, as well as in, in the fiction. The interesting thing when you say about when you speak about memory in, in Hannah Kral's case is that she's herself a child that survived Holocaust, but she she never told that story. I mean, she completely screened it out, and she always refuses to speak mm. anything about it. Mm. Um, but she somehow fulfills herself in telling other people's stories. Yes. 
And she was a, a teacher to a, a large group of very good uh, reportage writers, like Mariusz Szczygier, for instance, and a whole bunch of writers who started as reportage writers mm. in Duży Format, mm. an earlier magazine of Gazeta Wyborcza, yes. a major uh, n- newspaper. And then the other genre which has developed a great deal in recent years is the crime fiction, partly on the back of the whole wave of European crime fiction. But um, I find a very interesting phenomenon in Poland because not only are there people specifically trying to write crime novels in the same way as Swedes are or whatever, but some of the established novelists have decided to try their hand at crime. Or poets. And poets, (laughs) yes. The first of them was Marcin Świetlitski, who wrote um, three crime novels. Um, And he's a major poet, one of the most important poets after 1989. Um, so uh, it, it's actually quite interesting. I think <laughs> um, first it was, I guess, mainly about money. I mean, it's really difficult to make your living with writing. And I guess <laughs> for some writers, sort of serious writers, it was a way to to sell much more copies than usually. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it turned into some kind of a of a literary game yes. that writers between themselves sort of write crime novels and readers are just, you know, it's the benefit of the readers, but uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's not that there are typical yes. crime novels. They're either. not at all typical. No. One of the best examples is Olga Tokarczuk's book, which is being filmed right now. It's, uh, the book's called Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, which is a quote from Blake, but the film's called, well, in English, it's called Game Count, and it's about a mysterious series of murders... Um, very bizarre murders in a remote part of southwestern Poland. And it looks as if all the victims are local bigwigs who go hunting, and it looks as if animals have killed them in vengeance. And there's a kind of batty old lady in the middle of the story who um, is putting forward this theory very vociferously. And I won't tell you the... um, just to tell you how, how bizarre it is for a crime novel, uh, the main characters are members of the local sort of esoteric uh, literature club and they are translating poetry of William Blake in this yes. remote village. <laughs> That's right. So this is uh, this is uh, this adds quite but a lot to, sort of, to the they atmosphere. They translated at the kitchen table. It's a kind of yeah, but it's very funny. sweet. But but also, um, and Olga's written this partly because um, you know, she's rather militantly vegetarian, and I think she wanted to have a go at these types of people. There's one character who in the book who, when I read it, I immediately said, "That's Mr. So and So, isn't it?" And she said, yes, that's him, absolutely. And just a wonderful vengeance on this rather ghastly man who used to clean out their goat shed. Anyway, so, um, but she also has this character at the centre of her book, who's the heroine of the book, who is a woman of about, in her early 60s, and it's partly about how such people are never taken seriously and everyone just looks past them and ignores them. And it's a very important it's, point. It's a good, it's a good so it's she's a using good this crime genre, and it's a wonderful read. I'm hoping we'll get an English publisher for it now. The film's coming. Agnieszka Holland is directing it. And um, So she's one. And uh, Marcin Świetlicki, uh, Edward Pasewicz, another poet who wrote... Mm. It was a gay poet, and he wrote sort of a gay crime novel, which is called Dark Room. <laughs> and um, <laughs> there is... Um, a, Michał Witkowski, yes. who wrote... Uh, uh, it's another gay crime uh, novel. I would say it's <laughs> anti-crime novel. I mean, it's, yes. a, it's like a mock crime novel, and I, I 
yeah, that's how I treat it. It's like he starts a crime novel and then he goes into details like, uh, I know a local man who is uh, going into this kind of... Um, and, um, duel. Uh, into this duel uh, with the narrator who is more hipster. So one of them is like <laughs> listening to obscure Norwegian bands. Oh, that's right. And, and it's, it's wildly it's, funny it's uh, because funny. they meet in the middle of nowhere in a godforsaken um, it's it's a resort, but a resort in in uh, sea resort Out in, of in, in autumn in November. Yes. This miserable seaside town. And it's it's very nicely written. It's uh, very funny. Indeed. It doesn't really function as a crime novel no, in the end, really but it's work. it's not much much about it but it's uh, extremely so, so there's this fashion doing that and then um, we haven't got much more time but I just wanted to ask you um, a couple of more things to kind of finish up which is you translate also and I'm just wondering to what extent translation influences your writing style and whether you find the styles of the people you're translating ever sort of colouring your mm. own not much in the prose, I guess. Hmm. I mean, reading is just fair enough. You're not I mean, writing yeah. like Fitzgerald. Or no, no, <laughs> I, I, no. I never felt an urge to write. Uh, I mean, of course, it enriches you, and it gives you an ability to to write in different voices. Uh, it helps you a lot. It teaches a lot. But I think if there is a real an influence, then it would be in poetry. Hmm. And I know that there are particular poems. They are not necessarily written in the style of, of this or that poet, but I know that I would never write them if I hadn't translated Philip Larkin or Carl Sandburg or Kalis Verdinsch, the Latvian poet mm. I translated. Uh, I know that translating their poetry gave me a certain ability uh, to see things differently and to put words together differently. I think that's the crucial mm. thing and in literature in general, language. how yes. to put words together. And yes. people have, have so many ways of doing mm. that. And I think I actually learned quite a lot from uh, in the poetry lessons rather than in prose lessons. Yes, it's interesting because I find this with as a translator, it's interesting to see how people perceive, how one writer will perceive particular words and how they will use them for a particular effect. And I thought, hmm, I wouldn't have thought of that. And I find myself using words that I wouldn't have used in English. I so remember... They, they've forced me into new things myself. I remember when I was 18 years old or 17 years old, I was, for the first time I was reading Isaac Babel's uh, short stories, uh, the, the Horse Army. How, how the it Red Guard, it's called The in Red English. Guard. Yeah. I and think it's called the Red Cavalry. Red Cavalry? Yes, Red Cavalry. And um, there is a particular passage about a pogrom in a small town and in all that terrible passages written millions of times because he was such a meticulous writer there are there are stories by Babel who are rewritten and we know the copies for 33 times so uh, and there is a description of a tongue in someone's mouth which is in the color of raspberry and this just sticks out from that text. I remember I was shocked with this particular use. Perhaps it's not that shocking in, in English, I don't know. But in Polish, it is somehow so weird in that particular uh, 
bottom of the text. I remember <laughs> I was completely enchanted with that. And I thought, okay, you have to really be a great writer to, to come across this idea. <laughs> and to react to it in such a way. Um, I think, should we see if people want to ask questions at this point? Um, any questions? If you do, I have a microphone here for you. Sean has a question. Um, I think there's sort of a tradition of Polish literary polymaths, in particular writers who are also painters. I'm thinking of Wyspiański and Witkacy in particular, but I'm sure there are others who I'm less familiar with. Bruno Schulz. Oh, Bruno Schulz, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you... Do you think there's something about Poland that it's made people like that? Do you think that there's something about, a, or, do, or do you think that there's something about a particular writer that leads them to have that kind of more comprehensive approach to art? Do you, and, and do you see yourself as consciously as being part of a tradition there, or, I or wasn't there. <laughs> is, is it is it just something that's kind of happened? You know. Um, Sorry, that's a vague question. <laughs> I think it's it's a sheer coincidence. I don't think that there is a reason for that. Uh, although of, of, I, I would never say that I'm in any way connected to marvelous writers, um, all I can say is that Bruno Schultz really inspired me a lot, and he made a huge impression on me when I first read him, and next many times when I read him. Um, probably many of you are familiar with that uh, with that uh, writer. He was um, Polish Jewish artist from Drohobych, which was a total province back then, still is, I guess, it's mm. in Ukraine now. And um, he, uh, he was a, a teacher at a local uh, high school. He was teaching uh, drawing. Um, he was a weird man, uh, obsessed with, uh, with sexuality of, of young girls and with female shoes. And uh, he came from a traditional Jewish family, um, he started re- writing in German and he actually sent some of his short stories to Thomas Mann but I don't think he responded very affectionately or if, if at all and then he wrote those magnificent pieces of prose in 1930s in uh, two collections in Polish mm-hmm. two collections of short stories uh, uh, the, the English oh, the cinnamon shops yeah, cinnamon shops in English and the Street of Crocodiles. The Street of Crocodiles is the name of, a, of a one story, but I think it yes. was, in English uh, translation it was... called the whole book. It that. was called... Yes. Um, and um, it's a, 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 he's a magnificent writer. He, 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 dried, he died in the most tragic way. He was in the, in the Drohobich ghetto. And some of the, Rus- uh, of the German officers had their the, the people in the ghetto. So Schulz was a painter was ordered to paint pictures in uh, a children's room, in the nursery room of, of one of the mm. SS officers' house. And there was another uh, officer who had his carpenter who was preparing for him these beautiful boxes. And those two gentlemen were quarreling. <laughs> so one of them shot the carpenter, and the, uh, the, uh, another one shot the painter and writer. And... Uh, uh, it was the last day in which Schulz was planning to be in the ghetto because there was a way for him to escape and he went to buy some bread for the travel and he was shot mm. in the middle of in the, the city. In the street. In the street. Mm. 
And there is a story that he, w- he was preparing a novel, which was, which was called Messiah. Which is lost. Which is lost. Right. And nobody knows nobody if, if there was actually, if he wrote the novel or he didn't. Because there were sharp, some stories from, uh, from Messiah, Messiah were, uh, were published earlier in the collections of stories. Mm. And there is an idea that perhaps he never managed to write the novel. Mm. But there are also some accounts that he actually wrote it and it was preserved somewhere and lost forever. Uh, there were some attempts from the Russian side, uh, from the Russian embassy, to sell it in 1980s. But you never know if it, know it was if some KGB <laughs> plot or it's, oh, there is a real manuscript somewhere there, like this huge collection of the, of the, of the sack paintings. Yes, yes. Um, do we have any other questions? The gentleman in the front. Hey, uh, well, we've mentioned new trends and new stuff that's coming out of Poland. I'm quite interested in the current debate that you have around feminism and gender, and I'm just interested in how you can use that gender perspective in order to interrogate the canon. Do you, because we've, we've mentioned, for example, earlier on today, uh, the short story you've written that only uses the gender mm-hmm. pronouns. Um, I'm just interested if, if that could actually add something new to Polish, to Polish way of, of seeing literature. Uh, well, it, there are attempts to do that. Um, one of them was quite recently... Uh, <laughs> it caused a huge stir. Um, there is a book describing uh, scouts during the war in Warsaw, which is called Kamini uh, Nashaniec. And if you read it now with a gender perspective, you can see that there is some kind of chemistry between two main characters, male characters, one of the, one of them is actually called Sophie, because he had such an effeminate effeminate face <laughs> that he was called Sophie by his friends, and there are various things like that. When you read it now, it's pretty obvious that they they were perhaps lovers, but it was just observed by, by one of the scholars, and uh, she 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 wrote in a very very discreet manner. She said uh, they could be compared to. Achilles and Patroclus, and she just gave this innuendo. But of course, uh, the journalists, after two years, they found a book, and one of them published, were those two characters gay? (laughs) And of course, you have those 80-plus ladies who say, I was their friend, and uh, it would be outrageous. Of course, there were some gossips, but... (laughs) (laughs) Can you possibly think of someone, good mom, that's speaking about it loudly? And, and all this kind of stuff. And she was, uh, she's, of course, a war, a war hero, so you, you cannot really contradict her words. It's wildly funny and very strange. And um, I remember there was a, a book published about um, Jarosław Iwaszkiewicz, a great oh, Polish yes. writer. Um, and it was a whole... Uh, bunch of articles which was called homo biographies uh, and there is a, a young scholar who, who sort of unveiled the stories behind writers biographies something we would be very familiar with in England and um, there's this marvelous story that there is a man featured in one of those uh, affairs that Ivashkevich had and his son called the publisher Mm. And he said, you wrote in that book that my father was homosexual. I said, yes, well, actually, yes. And he, he was. I mean, <laughs> he was, by the way. But it's impossible. 
can uh, can you can you uh, can you destroy all the copies of this book? And I said, no. What would be reason for that? That's all lies. And he said, no. Actually, there are love letters of your father to Ivashkevich, and they are preserved in the museum of uh, the Ivashkevich house. And he said, do you think there is a possibility of destroying the letters as well? <laughs> So there are people who just wouldn't take no for an answer. I think there is still a lot of work to be done uh, generally in this society. So uh, it's just like the beginnings, really. (laughs) Not much comes out of it because the social uh, hatred and strong emotions are so big that it's very difficult to do anything. I mean, any innuendo would be be, um, perceived as... uh, Tarnishing the great memory of our formidable <laughs> writers. Uh, it's it's funny. It's scary at the same time, and it, 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 there is a great deal of hypocrisy in of that. In There's that. still an awful lot of getting into the 21st century to be done. Uh, you know, uh, we, we we never actually had our proper 19th century. Paul <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> wasn't bit there in the 19th mind. century, yes, so all those processes that actually went. And went on in the Western society. Exactly. Uh, didn't go, didn't go there, and they were. It's quite interesting. Uh, sometimes they were very progressive. So just after the First World War, there there was a women's suffrage instantly as soon as we gained independence. Whereas in some parts of Switzerland, it was in 1990s, <laughs> and um, there was a, a, a penal code from 1930s. Uh, in which homosexuality was completely legalized, uh, whereas in United Kingdom it was, I think, Not 1968. In yeah, in, in, in Austria it was 1970s, Good um, and in, in Poland it was uh, it was always legal. I mean, it was legal before uh, uh, the partitions. It was illegal because of the partition law, but it was never I- illegal in Poland. Poland and not even in. Communist era. No, uh, actually sure no. It was. Uh, in Soviet Union. No, in Soviet Union it was. In in Romania it was heavily persecuted. Um, I think that there was no um, there was no paragraph for for homosexuality between adults uh, in consenting sex, but uh, there were big. Um, there were paragraphs for for uh, homosexual prostitutions, uh, prostitution, and many men who were homosexuals were prosecuted as prostitutes. Oh. Uh, of course, completely. Um, it's all made up. It was completely yes. made up, mm-hmm. and there, there was also a thing which was called the action hyacinth. And in the uh, 1980s, I think during the Marshall State, um, we sort of picked gay guys mm. uh, to the police stations, questioned them, uh, and um, they had this huge uh, network uh, working on homosexuals and they were um, blackmailing those people, uh, forcing them to cooperate with, with the, with the, social, with the Secret yeah. Service. Right. Nevertheless, there was ne- never a p- proper paragraph for, for having homosexual Gosh. sex. Another question. Marta. Hello. I will continue in the vein of vague questions. Um... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're um, very steeped in the past. And I was thinking, you know, I mean it in the best way possible. <laughs> and I was wondering, what is it about the past? Is it just the past itself that's interesting to you? Or how the past interacts with the present? 
or how the past will interact with the future, or just what is it about the past? What is it about the old photos from the flea markets? Well, I guess the past is the only present time we live in, really. I mean, uh, just imagine us now being one hour old in a building that was instantly put here, in London that was constructed today. I mean, it's not possible. We are all deeply rooted in the past. There is much more past than present. Present is just a, a thin layer. It's uh, as the... Uh, is the word that you it. that you hear when it gets to you, it's already past. <laughs> so this is next to nothing. The past is the is the world we live in, and uh, future is just a promise or a threat, really, <laughs> in most cases. Um, and I guess that in order to understand uh, life and ourselves, you have to dig deeply. And history of, of nations, in personal history. I mean, we all come here charged with something that happened to us today and yesterday and 10 y- days ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. I mean, uh, I think there are many things that happened in your life 10 and 20 years ago uh, that if they happened differently, you would never come to this venue today. So if, you were, if we were to explain our today meeting <laughs> and why each of us um, <laughs> committed a one, one, uh, two hours of his life, two hours that will never come back to you, <laughs> I so guarantee I mean, it's wasted. <laughs> you will never get it back. You invested that and you will never get it back. So if, you were, if, you were, if we were to understand why we are wasting our time together today here... We would need your history. <laughs> and I think that's the reason. When I wrote Photoplastica, of course it's describing 19th century, but the majority of the texts here, they, dis- they allude, they refer to our lives now. There is this um, text which is called uh, uh, um, Female of the 20th Century. And this is a stereoscopic photograph which was uh, shown as an amusement in a Victorian parlor. Uh, or Edwardian, really. And um, this, show, this is called the, the female of the 20th century. And it, this shows a woman and a man sitting together at home. And she's wearing trousers. And he's doing, she's washing up the dishes. And she's reading. And it's wildly funny. I mean, for people back then, it was completely uh, an Serious. invention. A, a, a mockery of anything. Or was it supposed to be a joke? It was supposed to be a joke, yes. Oh, that in 20th, 20th oh, that, century That's what movement. the future would be like. Yes, and oh, it was uh, like, yes. like, like a joke. <laughs> and when you perceive it now, uh, the joke is completely turned uh, opposite. It's not the, the, the feminism, let's say, which is, uh, which is mocked here by the 19th century, really, with their approach to, to the gender roles. So... If I write about it, do I really write about 19th century? Not necessarily. I, re- I write about uh, 20th and 21st century as well. Another question? Have we got any more? Magda. Because you've got a very kind of... Uh, going back to the beginning of your conversation, you've got a very kind of prom- prominent, very strong uh, uh, appearance. Uh, the way you... You behave the way you you wear your clothes and uh, the whole kind of uh, entourage, let's say, of your writing, of your creativity. 
very often in Poland feel uh, people feel a little bit distant because of that. And from this perspective, uh, in the UK, especially in London, such a creation of, you know, of one's own life is something very much approved and uh, um, in, kind of in all its diversity. There are so many people around who create their lives and lifestyles uh, in a very conscious way. And I was wondering, because I don't know the answer to, the, to, to this, this question, what makes it different that in Poland it's this kind of roughness is appreciated while, you know, a, a little bit of creativity makes everyone a little bit, no. you know, yeah, you know, what's going on? Well, here it's, it's part of... Uh, part of life and, and part of kind of cultural life stream as well. Well, in London, I guess that's perhaps in Leeds, not that much, I guess. <laughs> I think it, uh, it differs from one place to another as well. Um, but still, of course, uh, Poland is, I'd say, backwards in many things, a little bit behind the modern world. And, uh, Do you still wear your top hat in the street? I sometimes wear it, but uh, you know, it's it's not that I wear a top hat every day, <laughs> but the people's <laughs> attitude towards it is that I do, and I constantly read in newspaper articles about oh, me. Yes. For instance, that he always wa- uh, uh, he always wears uh, tails. I mean, I wore tails to the n- to the opera and only to the opening, so <laughs> the premiere nights are like once in two years. Um, so. I think people find it so strange that um, uh, they, they they feel an urge to talk about it, and there are even voices that you know uh, I completely invented that in order to get popular, which is not true. I, it's just the way I like to be. But it's true. Mag- what Magda says that people find it quite challenging. You know, they feel they a bit do. unnerved by just somebody having a style and being a bit different. And well, it's changing up. slowly. Um, we live we live next to uh, uh, to school. It's a high school, and there are kids like I don't know thirteen, no, sixteen rather, sixteen eighteen years old. And I was I was wearing a top hat. That's true. I was going back home, and the three guys passed me, and one of them said, "Look, that's such a hipster guy." <laughs> I thought, okay, if it if it if it can pass as being a hipster, let's let's keep it that way. <laughs> Um, they didn't say, look, there's that vampire. Yeah, yeah. What well, are the strangest <laughs> things that people say? And the weirdest thing that happened to me, because people think I'm, uh, I'm playing in a movie and I'm Jew, uh, whatever. But I remembered <laughs> that, uh, you're that a I'm... Jew, what? Because you're wearing a top. But I, I had, so I have my oh, head, right. head covered, whatever. Dear. Uh, but the, uh, the funniest and strangest thing was that I walked in a street and there were two gypsy guys that passed near me and obviously they have a feeling that they are the different ones in the society and then when they have seen me they talk to me in gypsy language and I said <laughs> I don't I don't understand Roma <laughs> and then they they switch to Polish and they ask me some some questions they, Obviously, they assumed I'm a gypsy. I mean, look at me. 
it was the top head that worked out, or a bowler or whatever. Again, it's about the past because once upon a time it would have been odd if if all the men in the street weren't wearing capes and top hats. And or any hat. And if a man covered in tattoos, you'd think he'd escaped from a freak show. <laughs> now if you walk down the street, if you see somebody in a top hat, you think they're the freak. And all the people covered in tattoos are quite <laughs> normal. Well, that's true. Um, I think that's... That's it, is it? There's nobody itching to ask some question there like the, that they're the, one chance the in their of the last chance. Yeah, the question of the last or, chance. Or, um, otherwise, we can um, <laughs> okay. say thank you very, very yep. much. Thank for you very coming. much, I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>